to the credit of those who have tried to cover the religious left, it's really hard to learn because there's so many different people working at so many different levels, you know, whether it's an activist at Standing Rock or whether it's like someone like Pete Buttigieg or Cory Booker running for president who are actually trying to address and speak to those same activists. They seem really distant. But what ends up happening is that those two pieces of this broader progressive coalition, both the elected officials and these activists that are in the streets, are in conversation with one another. And arguably, they kind of have to be. That was Jack Jenkins, religion reporter for Religion News Service. His new book is American Prophets, The Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. He spoke with our associate editor, Matthew Sittman. You'll be hearing that interview in a moment. I'm Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. So I'm here with Commonweal Associate Editor, Matthew Sittman. And Matt, thanks for being here. It's good to talk to you. We're obviously in our respective home offices for this Commonweal podcast. Yes, indeed. You got to speak recently with Jack Jenkins, and we mentioned the title of this book at the outset of this. What was it that uh, drew your attention to Jack, and why do you think he'd make a good interview for our podcast? Jack is really one of the, I would say, most energetic and insightful reporters on the religion beat in the United States. One reason I was very interested in talking to him about this book of his on religious progressives, the religious left, if you want to use that term, is that that idea of a religious left is one that I think really gained prominence since Trump was elected. It had just been a part of what people argue about, debate. And oftentimes those debates were really sort of abstract and not necessarily connected to what's happening on the ground. And so one reason I thought this book was so helpful and a welcome intervention in the conversations and debates about the possibilities for a religious left, what the role of religious progressives uh, might be in American politics, is that rather than kind of speculating or making arguments about what it should be or could be, he really did the work on the ground of reporting on what's actually happening, kind of what the religious left is and what religious progressives are actually doing. So this was a very on-the-ground book that drew on uh, just a lot of reporting. I mean, Jack must have crisscrossed the country. He's talked to everyone from you know Native Americans at Standing Rock to the ministers who protested the Unite the Right march in Charlottesville to the ministers involved with Black Lives Matters. And rather than, again, just speculating, it's really, I think, a finely textured, deeply reported book on what people on the ground are doing. Well, one of the senses I got to in reading some of Jack's work, and he brings a certain kind of energy to it. And I just really sort of think uh, maybe that kind of affects the way he looks at things and the thoughts he brings to things. He, there's something he mentioned here, too, where he talks about religious activists as more important than religious voters. And I thought that just might be something for our listeners to, to pay attention to when he speaks to that. Did that strike you? Yes. And in fact, I think one of the things that Jack really emphasizes in our conversation and that comes across in his book is that looking for parallels between the religious left and the religious right is misguided in a way. So that distinction between religious voters and religious activists, it's, it's one of the things that Jack emphasizes in the book and in our conversation, which is that the religious right, of course, there are institutions and magazines and activists and, and you know, leaders in Washington, D.C. you would associate with the religious right. 
But really, too, it's a voting block. It's 81% of white evangelicals who supported Trump. It is, uh, you know, the moral majority and their place in the Reagan coalition and the kind of religious right more broadly is such a major voting block in Republican politics and right-wing politics over the last few decades. Whereas the religious left, we often see them more in protest, standing up against what Trump might be doing on the border, fighting back against white supremacy, fighting for the rights of uh, land rights of Native Americans at Standing Rock. You know, all those examples that he gives in the book, the sanctuary movement, it does seem like the religious left often is, again, a protest movement. It's highlighting injustice. And, you know, the precise voting power behind it, of course, there are a lot of Democrats who are religious. There are a lot of people on the left, if you want to make a distinction between Democrats and the left, who are religious. But it's not an organized voting block. And so really, what Jack's book does is look at the activists on the ground who are highlighting urgent moral issues, who are bringing their faith to bear in protest against the injustice we see in the United States in so many different areas. I'm curious, there's this, uh, the, the, the phrase in the title, the ongoing uh, fight for the soul of the country. Where does Jack see that headed as time goes on? And, or does he make any kind of final pronouncement on it? Or, or do you, Matt, do you have any sort of specific insight into how the fight is proceeding for the soul of the country? One thing about Jack's book is it does cover, as we discussed, both people associated with the Center for American Progress and John Podesta and Faith and Public Life in Washington, D.C., a number of whom people in, in that orbit had major roles in the fight for the Affordable Care Act. But we also see a lot of the activists he highlights, their relationship to the Democratic Party is quite tenuous. And so looking to the future, it's not really clear how, especially if, again, if you're looking to the religious right as a model, there's not the institutional support. There's not the money behind the religious left. It's, it seems like a much looser, more ad hoc group of activists and protesters and and again, with some people with a foothold in D.C. And, and a foothold in the Democratic Party, you know, what Jack's really doing is giving a sort of tour of what's happening on the ground. And it seems like in predicting the future, it's it's not clear because if I can put it this way, you know, because they're not a voting block, there's not like a legislative program that everyone on the religious left basically agrees on. There's not necessarily one policy everyone really wants. There's, as I, as I talked to Jack about, there's not the equivalent, say, in the Democratic Party of in the Republican Party. You know, we know the Republican Party, their position on abortion is driven by the many religious right voters who are part of their coalition. So if you're looking for precise issues where the religious left might bring their power to bear on public policy debates, that might not be the best way to kind of determine what the future might be. But I, I do think not just the future, but looking to the past, part of what Jack does is say that, you know, a lot of progressive politics throughout American history have been grounded in religious faith from some of the early progressive movement, you know, the social gospel in the, in the, in the 1920s through the civil rights movement. And what he's saying is there are still activists on the ground doing this work. They don't always get the attention the religious right does. You have to really be plugged into some of these communities to understand what's happening. And that's going to still be a part of our political debates. And for listeners, if you're wondering how you could keep track of this or if you're interested in this topic, I do think the closest thing to a unifying figure, someone who might be worth paying attention to, it really was 
uh, Reverend William Barber of the Moral Mondays movement and the Poor People's Campaign. He seems to be, as much as there could be a unifying figure in the book, a kind of thread that runs through Jack's reporting. Uh, Reverend Barber came up again and again. And so if you're looking for the future, I would keep in mind some of what I just said, but keeping tabs on, on Reverend Barber really, I think, would be another helpful thing to do. I think you're right, Matt. And I think maybe this is a good time to take a listen. So thanks for setting it up for us. No problem. Enjoy the conversation. Just a question to begin with. You cover a lot of ground. What was the movement you're trying to capture in it? What's this book about? It's about the modern religious left. It's, it's, it's tracing the 10 to 15 to 20 year history of this broad and really ephemeral and multifaceted movement that is the religious left and trying to trace and unpack how they have exerted influence not only on American politics, but on the broader progressive coalition in general. It, it's kind of this response to this question of does the religious left exist? And the answer is basically yes. And they've actually been deeply influential in these various different movements. And so, you know, in some ways, it kind of um, works as a very contemporary history of this movement that has existed throughout American history, but whose most uh, recent iterations have gotten less play and less attention. How does your background as a reporter, rather than, say, a historian or an academic theologian or coming at it from some other angle, you're a reporter, you're on the religion beat. How does that factor into the way you wrote this book? I kind of really appreciate that question because so often we hear the stories of the religious left, one, told by themselves, who should be telling these stories, the activists themselves telling their own stories, or 40 or 50 years after the fact by historians and in that respect. And so what was unusual is that if you look at the religious right, there is no shortage of journalism covering both their, you know, their, their machinations right now their machinations in the last 10, 20, 30 years. But as a journalist, you're able to kind of cover these sorts of events in real time, but you know, with the perspective of someone who is not advocating for this community, who's not trying to like convince you of their perspectives, but is trying to do the kind of quote unquote advocacy that all journalists do, which is to say, I think this movement is interesting and important and worth your time. And so from the perspective of a journalist, what I feel I'm able to give in this sort of scenario that a historian or an activist isn't is kind of, you know, someone I get to kind of just dive in, do a little little anthropology, a little sociology, a little data science, and a whole lot of interviews to try to unpack what's happening right now. The reporting was just really fascinating. And it does range from talking to John Podesta and, you know, having scoops about things that happened in the Oval Office during the fight over the Affordable Care Act to giving readers pretty direct access to activists on the ground that I'm fairly certain most of your readers won't have heard from before. It really does come through how many people you spoke to and just the work that went into this book. There is a tension, I think, between the parts of your book that focus more on the Democratic Party and, say, the Center for American Progress and Faith in Public Life, various uh, religious legislators, nuns on the bus, versus you know, activists at Standing Rock or some of the pastors involved with Black Lives Matter. How do all those things fit together in the sense of what does it mean to say there's this thing called the religious left if it seems so kind of scattered and there's institutional parts and there's activist parts and they're, they're not always working 
in tandem or even aware <laughs> of each other really. And yeah. you know, there's not like this cohesive one big movement pushing for clearly defined goals. What is it that kind of holds all these parts together? Or how do you see some of those tensions in what you reported on? I really appreciate this question because the reality is that those tensions are very real. And there are moments in the book where I hint at some of these, um, where there are, you know, one of the things, one of the most interesting things to me about the religious left is how many people that might, you know, be labeled as falling underneath that category also kind of abhor that label because they see it, one, as a repeat. I, I, they don't want to be a repeat of the religious right. They want, don't want to fall into the same traps of attaching themselves to power and systems of power that you find on the religious right. It's really, really deeply felt among these on-the-ground activists who don't want to attach themselves to a party or a politician ever. And I would argue that this is something that's endemic to the left in general. I think, you know, if you were trying to find a true reflection of the religious right on the left, it's not the religious left, nor does it exist anywhere on the left. Nothing in the progressive coalition exists in the same way as the religious right. The current progressive landscape in my estimation, is a, a coalition of coalitions. It's very many different disparate communities and organizations and activists that can galvanize together for common cause, whether that's for a legislative fight or for an election day. Now, what that means, though, is that like you have this really fascinating interaction that is to the credit of those who have tried to cover the religious left. It's really hard to learn because there's so many different people working at so many different levels, you know, whether it's an activist at Standing Rock or um, or on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, or, or whether it's like someone like Pete Buttigieg or Cory Booker running for president who are actually trying to address and speak to those same activists. They seem really distant. But what ends up happening and what I hope I expose a little bit in the book is that those two pieces of this broader progressive coalition, both the elected officials and the institutions, the Democratic Party, the Center for American Progress, and these activists that are in the, um, in the streets and you know, in the protest camps are in conversation with one another. And arguably, they kind of have to be. And you know, one thing I kind of talk about in the epilogue that I found really interesting about this past Democratic primary season is that when William Barber, when Reverend William Barber, the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, who started the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, when he and Reverend Liz Theo Harris, his co-chair, had a presidential candidates forum in Washington, D.C., they had nine candidates show up to that, including Joe Biden, including Bernie Sanders, and including Kamala Harris, and um, like some of the big front runners. But then when Netroots, a, a you know, more secular-oriented progressive gathering that's very well known among progressives had their candidates for him, they only managed to muster three or four candidates for that. And what that said to me was that these kinds of movements that you see bubbling up within these in the progressive religious left, these activist movements that are more in touch with what's happening on the ground than they are what's happening in the halls of power. Candidates eventually know that those are the people that they need to impress, especially in a democratic primary when they make up a disproportionate amount of the electorate, you know, these excited progressives. And so those tensions are real. And you see a lot of times, you know, you hear activists deeply critical of people who are running for president under the wing of the Democratic Party. But that what I came to learn was that over time, once those movements, those activist movements build up enough power, and once group, groups like the Poor People's Campaign with Red and William Barber try to coalesce a lot of those movements together, one thing you'll find in the book is he shows up in a lot of chapters, mostly because that movement has tried to you know, occupy space in all of these different sub-movements, whether it's LGBT inclusion or the environmentalist movement. And so then they become the check 
on the Democratic Party, on the institutional party. At least that's the hope of these activists. So I think that tension is real. It's also, I think, how the left works. That's a really interesting point. Tell us a little bit more about Reverend Barber, because if there is a thread that runs through the book, it's probably Reverend Barber. Who is Reverend Barber? What's the work that he's doing right now? The origin of of his activist story begins in North Carolina, where back in 2013, 2014, 2015, he launched what was called the Moral Monday movement, Moral Mondays, where they, um, groups of North Carolinians from across the progressive spectrum, both, you know, the stalwart activists, also clergy, also, you know, people who were kind of new to the movement started showing up and getting arrested every Monday outside the Capitol in that state trying, you know, decrying uh, the what had become this very conservative state legislator. It was one of the most conservative state legislators in the country that had swept into power in North Carolina. And so these, these different groups of people had all come together to amass to protest them. And one of the key organizers was William Barber. And one of the reasons that he proved to be successful was that he used what he referred to as fusion organizing, which dates back to a specific historical moment in North Carolina history. But what it meant in 2014 and 2015 is that he was organizing wide varieties of people, both religious and non-religious, for a specific common goal. And they ended up, you know, they are credited, that movement and Barber's um, influence are credited with helping unseat the Republican governor in the state of North Carolina in 2016. It's one of the few bright spots for Democrats on election day in 2016. So, so then you have this figure who is this, you know, small town pastor in North Carolina, who has a medical condition that makes him walk with a cane, who doesn't necessarily come across as the most imposing figure, and yet has this incredible oratory skill. He has incredible organizing skill and has managed to amass an entire movement around him in North Carolina that was rooted in faith, at least from his perspective. The Moral Monday movement was credited as the largest liberal protests of um, those years. What are the key issues for the Moral Mondays movement or, or kind of Reverend Barber's priorities? So Barber, I mean, one thing that he he often comes down to both then and now, because since the, the end of that story is that he ends up creating the, um, you know, recreating the poor people's campaign, is that, you know, healthcare is often one that he um, that he holds very dear healthcare for the poor and the poor in general. So the disenfranchised either by class or especially by race. When he builds these fusion coalitions, he brings in as many people as possible it is different movements as possible if the person in charge, which in North Carolina was the state legislator and the governor, is hurting that progressive cause. So that includes people who wanted to take action um, to better the state of education in North Carolina. That includes people who wanted to fight for environmental justice in North Carolina. And so you start getting this massive coalition that if they all were organizing independently, wouldn't have had as much of an effect. But if they're all showing up and getting arrested together and massing and having massive rallies outside of North Carolina's state capital, that tends to be to have more of an effect. So after 2016, he just tried to replicate that on a national scale. You know, Jack, that might be a good way into a question I've been wanting to to kind of pose about the religious left. One thing you do in the book is kind of take these examples of things that a lot of progressive activists, people who follow the news and are engaged with politics might have heard about and say, see, there's actually this really interesting and complicated religious dimension too. But that's not the same as the religious left. Being a part of those movements isn't the same as kind of setting the agenda or you know imposing its will on this issue or that issue. 
So what do religious people bring to the left that's distinctive? What difference does it make if the activists involved are religious or not? So this is a, this is a really important and interesting question because for some of those movements, you know, people of faith have taken a leading role. They're the ones who initiated the movements, and for other movements, like you said, they, they've kind of come alongside more secular activists to assist. And so, you know, one of the things I was arguing earlier is that religious activists have been really clear that they want to work with secular activists, not at the exclusion of secular activists. And so, yes, there is this element to which. No matter what, the religious left is like any other activist group. And since the, the left is a coalition of coalitions, any more people you can get into the room for your cause is helpful, whether they have a collar or a yarmulke on, or whether they are a stalwart atheist or agnostic. However, one of the things that has emerged in the context of Trump's election and presidency is that religious activists arguably are more important than just religious voters. If there is a specific thing that faith-rooted activists have proven themselves uniquely adept at in the larger progressive coalition, it is the act of activism. And I think part of that is a practical reality in that faith communities are gathered. They are, they are already an organized community and gathering them together is quicker and more efficient in some regards, in some instances, than if you just made a move on petition. When Trump was elected, there's a reason why so many of the prominent leaders of the resistance movement, whether it was Linda Sarsour or Reverend Barber, were these faith-based activists that have been doing this for some time. And the reason for that is because they have never stopped doing activism and they have never stopped being a part of this. The religious left is very loud and very good at activism. So I think that's one of the distinctive things they have and offer to the progressive coalition. Right. Maybe it was subconscious on my part, Jack, that I'm so sick of talking about Trump that I, I didn't front load Trump at the start of our conversation necessarily. Your book definitely <laughs> feels of the moment in the sense of capturing the activist and protest energy that, that Trump you know, helped unleash. But by raising the specter of Trump, it raises, of course, the specter of the upcoming 2020 election. And as we look to 2020, I would guess Joe Biden, someone who among the candidates that Democrats were picking uh, among, is someone who can speak to people of faith. He kind of has some of those habits already, you know, talking about Catholic grandparents and keep the faith, Joe, and all that. So what should we be looking for? What would an, an effective, more effective faith outreach from the Biden campaign look like? And does it really matter? What are the lessons? from kind of recent democratic history in terms of this outreach to religious voters? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm a bit of a cynic here. It really depends on the year and the election. And, you know, if you look at Obama's 2008 election, you know, he wanted to make it a component of him as a candidate. He wanted, you know, faith to be something that he kind of dug into as, you know, a, a part of his political persona. That's why the, the title of this book, The Audacity of Hope, is like reference, is a, is a theological reference, is a religious reference. And so I think, you know, for him, he really kind of put that as one of the centerpieces of his candidacy. And that's why he had this robust faith outreach program. And that proved very efficacious. And according to, um, to the folks who helped run that in states like South Carolina and in that particular 2008 context, with even pulling across the aisle some younger evangelical, younger white evangelical voters. Now, when you get to 2016 and looking at 2020, what it means to do faith outreach has changed a little bit, where you know, I think people are kind of taking a both and approach, which is that 
yes, faith outreach can be this mechanism through which you you get to talk to moderate voters, for lack of a better term, or even some conservative voters. It is also a way to excite elements of the base, right? You know, turning out African-American Protestants was a secret to how Joe Biden was able to secure a win in South Carolina. And it's not a coincidence that while Joe Biden did not have a national faith outreach director, he was one of the first to hire a faith outreach director specifically for South Carolina. And come the end of the year, he had endorsements from 100 faith leaders just in the state. In scenarios where you know we had votes as narrow in 2016 as we were, a small little margin of victory, a small little margin with one group can be half a percentage point or a whole percentage point. And that's enough to tip states like Florida or Pennsylvania or Michigan. And so I think from the perspective of someone like Joe Biden, there is the element to faith outreach that's you know how he can talk to voters. He can invoke his faith. He talks about Kierkegaard. He uses the same Kierkegaard quote quite often. <laughs> but I think more strategically, if they want to help run up the score and help tip some of these states in his favor, they need to look at places like Florida, where the GOP is apparently already investing in Hispanic Protestants who are already split between the two parties. Or, you know, they do need to try to speak to African-American Protestants and make sure that that connection is maintained from now until Election Day. So the calculus is a little different. It's not like the Obama campaign where he was so far reaching that campaign was such a behemoth that, of course, faith was a component of it, but he could kind of really um, expand the map. But I would imagine for Joe Biden, it's got to be really strategic and looking at these tiny little margins and these tiny little communities. I mean, you should be looking at places like Michigan and looking at the Muslim population outside of Detroit and Dearborn. And, you know, if, if he can, you know, win a lot of support from there, he can run up the score in that state, which was won by such a narrow margin by Trump in 2016. So I, I it's a long way way of saying I think he needs to take a scalpel, not a mallet to the idea of faith outreach, if, if, if it's going to look like it did in 2016. That's really fascinating and helpful and probably not a bad place to wrap up. Thanks so much for having me. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>